Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community and communities create social change. I'm David Peck and this is Face to Face. So Dr. Kurt Rhodes is my guest today on Face to Face, and he's a friend of mine. I met him several years ago, quite a few years ago here in Toronto at a conference. He's spent 35 years in the Middle East. He's an academic. He's a teacher. He's just an all-around interesting guy to hang out with. So many stories, so much knowledge, so much wisdom. And, and we uh, managed to put together about seven events here in Toronto where he spoke at the uh, Ontario Council for International Cooperation, the uh, University of Toronto, Humber College. We had him at a high school. We had him at local events. We had a, a breakfast of some influencers out in the West End. And, and one of the things that just kept bubbling to the surface for me was this idea of relationship. How is Canada going to deal with the Syrian refugee crisis here in Canada as we bring in 25,000 you know, men, women, boys and girls from Syria here. How are we going to handle it well? Well, listen in today to, to what Kurt has to say about that. He gives us a little bit of history of his organization called Questcope, how he's managed and survived for 35 years in the Middle East. You're going to enjoy this interview. You're going to learn a lot. And, and who knows, maybe, maybe somebody out there is listening that's going to, it's going to have an impact on the way things are going to be done as uh, we handle this uh, crisis. And I trust and hope we handle it well. So, um, Dr. Kurt Rhodes, buckle up. It's going to be great. Uh, check out uh, the site for some new, really interesting interviews, davidpecklive.com, rabble.ca. Thanks for listening. So, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by uh, a returning guest, I suppose. Uh, Dr. Kurt Rhodes is joining us uh, for the second time. I think we're, this could be around interview 150, I think, actually, Kurt. And I think you were like my third or fourth interview when we first started Face to Face. So, thanks for for saying yes to this interview and thanks for coming back. That's my pleasure. So, so Dr. Rhodes began his career in the Middle East in the early 80s. He's been in Jordan or in the area for about 35 years. He was the 2011 Social Entrepreneur of the Year. He received the Dr. Jean Mayer Global Citizenship Award in 2014. So 
The thing that I find really interesting about our guest today is uh, that he is a academic at heart, but ha is clearly a practitioner and getting things done on the ground as well. And so uh, I'm uh, just going to tell my listeners, Kurt, real quickly, had the fortune of spending the last three days uh, with uh, Kurt uh, in Toronto mostly. We got out to Guelph, we were at U of T, we were at Humber College, we spoke at a high school. It's really quite remarkable how much time we spent basically getting the word on the street about what's happening uh, in the Middle East, what's happening uh, from a, an insider's perspective. And so uh, we, I think we were both blown away at the, the amount of interest uh, that's out there for, for people. And I think it's really interesting, too, to note that on the day that we met, um, I think we were at U of T, Humber, and I can't remember where else, but the government of Canada was meeting to talk about what to do with Syrian the Syrian refugees coming into the Canada. And by the way, Kurt, I don't know if you've seen the news, but we're still committing to the 25,000 by the end of the year, which seems to me to be a little crazy, but apparently that is the plan uh, for the near future. So, hey, listen, Kurt, we've got a lot to talk about today because there's been quite a bit of happening in the news with the Paris attacks. Uh, I believe uh, President Obama came out this morning about escalating the war on terror. Um, uh, with a comment. Um, but before we dig, can you tell me a little bit about the 35 years in the Middle East and and why there and not Middle Africa? Why there and not Middle Africa? Yeah. <clears throat> because early in my career, I spent a three-year volunteer stint in Indonesia and had the good fortune to have lots of Indonesian Muslim friends and lots of Indonesian Christian friends and observed the way that they lived together and respected each other. Hmm. And I comprehended that in my lifetime, young people, and probably mostly young people who are Muslims, would be um, a, a new thing for the world to understand and to relate to. So when I had a chance to go to Beirut many years later, as the assistant dean at the, in the School of Public Health at the American University of Beirut, I took it. And uh, I've been there ever since. So really it was, uh, I mean, this is early on. I mean, QuestCope hasn't been formed. You're, you're going there to teach, basically, and to run a, 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 a part of a, a department in a university? Correct. Yeah. So tell me about Questcope because Questcope and I'm gonna I'm gonna put a link on the site to 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 your to your website and talk a little bit about it in your bio and so on. But I mean, clearly an organization that's you know getting their hands dirty. You guys work in literacy, MNCH mentorship, and so on. But but tell me a little bit about that before we dig into some more of the uh, the issues. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in a way, I'm a very reluctant founder of an organization. When I had been in in Lebanon for a year and a half, the um, there were, the Israeli army invaded West Beirut, and at the end of the overt invasion of three or four months in the summer of '82, at the end of that, when we thought it was over, all of the families of the fighters went back to their homes in Sabra and Shatila camp, and I had provided. Uh, medical triage for those people when they hmm. were the women, children, elderly, and handicapped, when they came up to West Beirut for safety. When they went back and uh, they were massacred, that was a turning point in my life. Hold on. What do you mean they were massacred? 
Um, well, they returned to their homes in Tambor and Chitila Camp. We thought everything had finished, that the right. police had gone home. And instead, uh, it wasn't true. The, um, the Israeli army ringed the camps and allowed um, militias in there to do the, to do the job. So that was quite a quite a shock to everybody all over the world. And, and Questcope grew out of your was it out of your concern? Would you say for the other was it out of a sense of moral outrage? I mean, here you were already on the ground teaching in a different context, so clearly you've got an idea about others that maybe we don't all share. So that's pretty interesting to me. But then were you sort of thrown into this in a way, Kurt? Like you say, a reluctant uh -huh. founder, but. Yeah, just the unease when you when you observe people who are of no threat, who have really nothing to uh, recommend themselves for being killed. You know, they're not armed, they're not conspiring, they just happen to be in the way, mm. and so they're easily easily uh, erased is the word I've used for years. And that's why our motto on our, for our organization is putting the last first, because it was their voices were uh, inaudible to people, so they were easily removed. I found I was pretty interested to hear Kurt after listening to you seven times speak over the last few days, uh, which, by the way, was a delight. I just want you to know that. Uh, our our little mini Canadian tour for you. That 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 phrase comes out of a book back in the 60s, is it, by Robert Chambers? Well, uh, 79, Robert. 79, okay, Chambers. thanks. Yes. Called Putting the Last First. And then a decade or so later, he wrote the sequel to it called Whose Reality Counts? Putting the First, Last. And in short, the message, the thesis of the book? The thesis of the, 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 thesis of the first book was people have worth and value. Mm. Mm. And Participation is not about them joining us. It's about behaving and living in such a way that they would invite us to join them. Hmm. You you talk you know at U of T and at Humber uh, over the last couple of days and some of the talks you talk you talked. I got the sense from you that you spend a lot of time listening. I do spend a lot of time listening. You know, as as well as I know Arabic, of course, it's still not my first language, and I learn a lot every day. Hmm both in the language and about the language. And and was that a sort of what Chambers was getting at? I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, isn't that kind of how you communicate to others that they have worth and value by listening to their situation, by understanding their context, instead of, you know, coming in from a, a, an academic or a Western or a theoretical perspective and saying, we've got it all sorted out. We're here to listen and to take as well. Well, certainly to listen to someone is to empower them. Mm. And to listen and then allow that, allow what you heard to change some of the ways that you will live, act, work, and think. But that is probably the most empowering thing of all. People observe that their words change your actions. So do you, so, so, okay, so before we go into, I want you to tell me what you, th what, what you believe a refugee is, and, and then I want to get into some really practical things about what's happening here on Canadian soil with, you know, with our new Liberal government and Prime Minister Trudeau and, and John McCallum wanting to bring in 25,000 refugees into Canada in the next, wow, in the, less than four weeks, basically, really. I mean, 
between now and the end of the year. Uh, I guess about eight weeks, I suppose. But if you factor in Christmas and so on, it's going to be going to be a serious challenge. Um, do you really believe in the splash and ripple effect, Kurt? 35 years in, I mean, you sound pretty hopeful to me. And, you know, you're in probably one of the most conflicted parts in the world. And it, I think you're going back. So, so going back. Yeah. So either we need to commit you to an institution of one kind or another and heavily medicate you, or we need to, <laughs> or we need to find out what's going on over there, Kurt. Well, someone asked me on this uh, little three-day jaunt that I took with you, how do you keep positive? Mm. And I said, when you observe people who have lost so much, and they turn to other people beside them who've lost just a little bit more, mm. and they comfort them and encourage them, that restores your faith in them, in yourself, in humanity, in the universe, and it puts the energy back in your in your heart to keep giving. And honestly, that's that's the only way I could have survived for thirty five years. So, you, so you do believe in the splash and ripple. You do believe in incremental change and little things making a big difference, and so on. Yes, I do. I think you know this idea, the other side of the coin for Questcope of sometimes you have to put the first last. I think you do have to speak to powers. You do have to speak to authorities. We cannot be naive, but power and authority is uh, very ephemeral, and it shifts and it changes, and people cannot change as fast as the winds change their direction. Right. You know, we're we're people, creatures of time, but we also need people around us who say, the wind changed direction, and but this doesn't change how I want to relate to you. So let's go, let's go real practical real quickly here and dig right in. I mean, we've got a little bit of time to chat about some of these issues and maybe we can do a follow-up down the road as things unfold here. Um, but I have to say I was encouraged by what we saw over the past few days. We probably were in front of several hundred people uh, who, who seemed pretty keen on, on sponsoring families, on doing it right, on not making too many mistakes and so on. What do you, I mean, I want you to tell me what you think a refugee is. Um, and then I want you to say something a little bit about, you know, if you were on the advisory board <laughs> for, for bringing in these folks here into these Syrians and, and so on into Canada, what are, what are some of the things that you'd want us to be thinking about? Well, the, um, for me, the primary marker of a refugee is a person who has lost the connection the human connections, the relational connections that connected them to their world, their history, their future, and themselves. Hmm. So you, because you, you lose, you know, you can lose your house, you can lose your car, you can, you can even lose your country. But the thing that you can't survive without are the relationships of human beings that you knew, they knew you, you cared for one another. Life is too heavy to bear alone. Right. Right. Number one is the, the violence done to your, your relationships, your friendships, and the, the love that you need to give and that you need to receive. Um, then it's a scale of, are you also physically damaged? Will you not have a place to be safe? Right. Do you not have enough to eat? But the, the primary marker is a person who's just lost all connection. 
And that really potentiates the, the sense of trauma and loss when there is no connection for you. Nobody looks at you and sees you. They look at you and look over you. Is, is there a sense in which, uh, um, I mean, I would imagine that in most of these camps, uh, these refugee camps, and you, you, you're working in, in, a, in a camp that has about 85,000 85, people, I believe. Do you not? Yes. I mean, what are, what are some of the sort of the things coming out of that, uh, the, these camps that you're seeing, these observations that you're making about, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're all pretty much the same when it gets right down to it. So, I mean, clean water and safety and security and I guess some semblance of order and so on. But is there, is there anything kind of bubbling to the surface for you that says, okay, maybe we could have done this a little better already, or maybe here's, a, here's, here's something I could maybe write about to say, okay, let's not do this next time? Yeah, I would, uh, the, the first one that comes to mind, and it comes to mind first, second, and third, hmm. um, I'm my, I have an adult daughter who is an instructor of classical Arabic at the University of Kansas, and she visited us and spent some of her holiday at the end of the fasting month of Ramadan. And being a Western woman, but having been raised in Syria, speaking a very good Arabic, better than mine, with a Damascus accent, she's quite in demand. People completely ignore me when she's <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Maybe for more reason than hey, one. Okay? Hey, Kurt, having spent three days with you, I now understand why. Thank you. You're <laughs> so kind. That's right. Sure hey, hey, I'm all about affirming that. others, Kurt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, that kind of thing. That's right, yeah. But she, um, as she was talking and I was listening, you know, you get a chance to think about what's going on. So at one point I said, you know, and everybody who's in the room is 35 years or younger. Mm. And I am probably almost twice that. And I said at a certain point, I said, you know, guys, if you could change one thing that would make all the other things better, what would that one thing be? And instantly, three or four people said, you know, we're not like sheep. Mm. We're people. We have abilities. We have drive. We have ambition. We can do things for our people. If we are given the respect, we can do stuff, and we can make it better for everybody. I think in, in the 21st century, because there aren't so many refugee camps anymore. There only 10% of Syrians are in a refugee camp. Right. The engaging with our urban neighbors who happen to be displaced, who happen to be friendless, who happen to have gone through such trauma, uh, engaging them and you know, showing them the respect that they're due and saying, so what, what do you have in your mind? How would it be better for this? Right. Group of twenty right. staring kids on the corner, you know, that kind of thing. That's definitely what we need in the refugee camps as they exist. One one of the things that really stood out for me occurred in a couple of the different talks that we were, you know, hanging out uh, together at. You know, you talked and sort of joked in a way, but there was a sentiment behind it, and you said, "Hey, hey, guys, just so you know, we're going to be sending five or six uh, um Syrians from, from, from our team, from people that we know that are incredibly capable and highly educated and so on. And by the way, once, once they get over here, we want six of your best Canadians to, and yeah. we want, we want, we want, we want them in return. And I just, right. it was great. You know, you could feel you kind of leveled the room and, you know, you got the chuckles and the, and the humor was well taken, but, but, but I wonder to what degree that the message actually took as well. 
Well, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but um, the numbers are absolutely overwhelming. Hmm. You know, just in the refugee camp is 75,000 people. There are probably 20 to 30,000 uh, what you call youth, 15 to 30-year-olds. Right. What will, who can, nobody can afford a program for 30,000 people. Right. So part of our approach was to realize, to go back to this uh, splash and ripple thing, that an individual can affect the lives of one, two, three, five individuals if that individual knows how to do it. Sure. So we call these mentors. So over a period of two years in the camp alone, we have a couple of thousand, it might be two and a half, three thousand young people who have been mentored. We have 300 Syrians, these are all Syrian refugees, who know how to mentor, who know how to guide, who know how to relate. And we have another 40 or so um, individuals who lead this whole process with mentors and mentored individuals that we call mentor coordinators. So it's our mentor coordinators who've uh, been able to get on the list to go to Canada. They are unusual refugees for Canada. They are prepared for this, for these large numbers of people. They are prepared for large numbers of, you know, 18 to 30-year-olds. Kurt, un, un, unusual in the sense of like the level of skill that they bring. Working, mentoring others in a refugee-like situation is is what you mean. Skill, right? and yeah. Experience and and vision and wisdom. Right, right. You know, when we met them, they're they're highly educated. You know, we have engineers, accountants, media specialists, IT guys, marketing specialists, economists, uh, business majors. We have a statistician. Imagine that. Hmm. So they're they're all very competent people, and right. they've had to learn things that you would learn if you had studied sociology or psychology or anthropology. So they're um, more equipped than they've ever been in their lives to show compassion and to be wise about it. And I don't, I don't, I don't know that we, I don't know, hmm. I can't speak for everyone, but I, you know, having worked in this field now for a while, you, you do shift in your ideas and your understanding about others and, and representation and what the media does and so on. But I don't know that that's what the media is really communicating about refugees, right? It's, these are, these are sheep. These are incredibly needy people. These are, uh, oh, wow, what if we don't take them in kind of. And so out of that, I think it kind of, I don't know, it kind of drives a certain impression or understanding that's pretty inaccurate, wouldn't you say? Well, not only inaccurate, but just a slight twist, and we become terribly afraid of them. Right. You know, I listened to uh, a broadcast um, yesterday about, from refugees in France who haven't been there very long, and they don't even speak French, so they were speaking in... in uh, Farsi from Afghanistan and various other languages, and they were translated into French. And they said, people are beginning to look at us strange, face mm. things to us, because refugees are causing this problem. And they said, look at us. We have nothing. We're sleeping on cardboard. We hardly have enough to eat. We came here to France because this was happening in our country. Right. We wanted a new and better life. So I think... 
Uh, I don't think. I, my direct experience with refugees, Somali, Iraqi, or Syrian, is that they are people who are looking for a place that their lives can be renewed and that they can make better for themselves and for others. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, Kurt, I don't think we think of refugees that way. We don't think of them as, we think of it as a, a drain. It's going to be a drain on our society. We don't we don't see any kind of innovation or any kind of entrepreneurship, it seems to me. I mean, maybe some of us do, but, I mean, I think that, for me, was a real in, encouraging and affirming takeaway. You know, just I've, I've had so many revelations uh, as I've dug a little bit deeper into the crisis and, and the more I read and so on, and, and thrilled that our government is deeply committed to bringing 25 oh thousand refugees i really am what a metaphor right for the rest of the world but holy smokes we got to do it right yes i did remember in one of the restaurants that we sat one morning i did warn everyone that when syrians come within a couple of years they'll run all the restaurants <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah the entrepreneurial nature and the ability of syrians to cook good food and provide you a good good experience as you dine is phenomenal and very well known why has um, what you know? What so apprenticeship uh, eighty five hundred hours as a as an electrician? I served uh, becoming an electrician. I'm a magician. I've spent time alongside other magicians learning card and coin tricks over the years, and I can't go on it enough about the whole idea of elbow knowledge and what you learn without really being taught, if that makes any sense. Um, but mm -hmm. so this whole idea of mentoring on the STARS Advisory Committee at York University years ago, mentoring for me is a big deal. Clearly, it's a big deal for Questcope. Uh, I mean, is that is that for you guys the way you decided at some point that we could affect the most change or this is the stepping stone towards what could be called sustainable development someday? Greater impact and efficacy and all that, Kurt? I would, I would say so. The real change passes from one person to another. Hmm. You know, passes from a mother to a child, passes from a father to a child, passes from a scoutmaster to a scout. Hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it passes from an inspiring teacher to a student. So you're, you're never really sure when the spark will jump, but it jumps between people. And when you have such a, you know, the population of the world has never been larger. Our problem population has never faced more challenges. So it seems reasonable to go back to a very ancient way for change to advance. And that way is through relationships, through mentors. So all the more reason why, then, it seems to me that as we, or as any country around the world brings in refugees of any kind, whether they're Syrian or whoever they might be, um, and it's as, as ridiculous as this sounds, Kurt, but, but treating them like um, um, neighbors, treating them like human beings, it sounds so insane to say that, but to not bureaucratize them, <laughs> I think I might have just made up a word, but to not turn them into a number. Right? I mean, is, isn't that kind of what you're saying? Well, I think that for, for you and me, because we're close to each other generationally, but for... Easy, some, easy. People, uh, <laughs> easy. For people in your children's generation, yeah. and say 20-ish down, not only is what we said true, but also they don't trust any more programmatic talk. They don't, everybody's got an agenda that they're trying to pull over their eyes. Right. 
mentoring undoes the agenda because mentoring nice. puts people right up against each other and you really have to I mean I can I do not find it easy to hide from my friend you know? right right my friend sees me and calls me out when I need it and calls me up when I need it so I think I think mentor to think of mentorship as a as a way to live in the universe is probably one of the most effective ways that I could think of. Well, we there's have to have programs, we have to organize, but the, the, the goal is not to have a program with thousands of people in it. The goal is to have a program that has thousands of relationships one-to-one. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? We're so afraid of, of not having an impact, and so what do we do? We create charts and forms and, and programs and ultimately and ironically maybe have less of an impact if we'd spent more time focusing on the actual people <laughs> that were built inside uh, of the no, no, in the university community, if so, we just had a few more dozen PowerPoints, we could probably change the <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or a couple more multiple choice tests, maybe? I think maybe that's oh, what we oh, need. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, although I'd prefer the PowerPoint myself. Yes, yes, agreed. Yeah. The Death of PowerPoint. Edward Tuft wrote an essay a few years ago called PowerPoint Corrupts Absolutely, I believe is the title. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty good. And I mean, he raises all those questions about pedagogy and about breaking, and, you know, instead of breaking down barriers in the classroom, what are we doing? We're building them up. Right, and so we don't treat students we don't treat students like 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 partners in the dialogue and so on, and it 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 ultimately kind of shoots us in the foot, I suppose. Um, well, Warren Buffett, the famous American investor, or whatever week of him, said something many years ago that really affected me. He said, "If you can't explain to someone on the back of a napkin in a restaurant with a crayon what you're actually trying to do." He said, then you don't even know what you're doing. Mm. So, you know, life is not as simple as the back of a napkin and a crayon. But actually understanding directions and understanding uh, how people can fit together does get pretty simpler than we try to See, present it. Kurt, I could, I, could, I could do it on the back of the napkin depending on the size of the napkin. And I would just have to write really small. But remember, you have a crayon. You can only get... Oh, that's right. Oh, and it's not sharp. <laughs> and it's not sharp. That's right. Yeah. Your intellect needs to be sharp, but the crayon is... Yes. So what's what's on the back of your napkin? On the back of my napkin are yeah. three little circles. I know exactly. I've done my napkin many times. Okay. And one of my circles says, whatever you do, you have to help the individual make it better for themselves. Second circle, it interlinks like a like a chain, is you also have to help institutions respond to individuals who want things to be better. So your practices have to change. Do I feel a Venn diagram third, coming on here, Kurt? This is a Venn diagram. And the third one, well, it's on a napkin, right? So it's really simple. <laughs> right. The third circle overlaps with the other two. And that says, and you have to change the decisions that are made. You have mm. to change the policy. P policy. And this, this is a very complex thing that was developed at the University of Maryland called pro-social development. And if you make it across cultures, then it becomes cross-cultural, ethnically valid pro-social mm. development. But it's really about realizing that I can change as an individual, the institution that I have to relate to has to change, and then the policy.
policy that lets us both exist has to change. Mm. That's my napkin. It sounds like a good napkin. Um, we need to get those distributed. So you come back home, 35 years in the Middle East, you come back home from time to time now to raise funds, to reconnect with family, etc. What What's one of the things you notice? What's one of the things that really pisses you off about Western culture? Um, maybe maybe it doesn't piss you off. Maybe maybe you actually get home and you go, wow, A&W root beer. That's what I've been missing. <laughs> Actually, the American hamburger chain, Burger King, they make a chocolate milkshake that I can't get, except at Burger King anywhere in the world. So that's, the, that's the one thing, okay? Hey, hey, there's a Burger King in Phnom Penh now, just so you know. It, it opened yeah, up a yeah. couple. The, and the, it's a non-dairy thing. It's made out of seaweed. Oh, okay? that's... Oh, okay. Oh, okay, so it's like the magical ingredient, seaweed? It's the secret sauce. Right. Seaweed. But I, I happen to love seaweed. I, you know, I, when you get to dairy, I slum. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but I love dairy too. Nothing against dairy. Um, but the thing that astonishes me mm-hmm. is in the West, we're always talking, and we don't we don't say anything to each other. So you <laughs> walk up to you walk up to a counter. You walk up to a restaurant. You listen to. Uh, talking heads talking on the TV, and it all distills down to little piles of letters hmm. without meaning piling up on the floor around us. And it, it exhausts me. And when I get home from these from trips, I walk in the door and I tell either my wife, my daughters, or my grandsons, I'm, I would like to be back where people were actually talking to me hmm. rather than just words flowing and everything's politically correct and there's no real meaning and all the smiles are uh, pasted on, you know. Is that is that is that just being superficial, Kurt, or is that just a problem of being human, or is it that we're just so I don't know self-absorbed that we don't have time for anybody else? I don't know. I think it's. Uh, I think we've seen too many toothpaste commercials on TV, so those are our models. Too many what? Toothpaste commercials. Why? Why toothpaste? Where you're, you can be a dynamic, attractive person right. if you just show your teeth. And I think, wow, I'm not sure that's all that's required. Right. Which, at the risk of trying to sort of connect some threads here, which I'm hoping the listeners are already doing, I mean, I, that's exactly what mentoring really is is the antithesis of isn't it it's i mean it's a it's long term it's it's getting to deeper levels it's going beyond scratching the surface and all those things it's it's it's, it's the behind the scene things yep you don't watch toothpaste commercials basically is what you're saying i try not to yeah, yeah. <laughs> well isn't it trust kurt aren't we talking about trust here i mean really isn't the terrorism problem isn't war isn't isn't breakdown in families, breakdown in relationships. I mean, on some level, can't we connect it to a lack of trust? Or I guess fear, obviously, and, and I'm not trying to reduce it to one thing, but trust is a biggie here, and and, and mentoring and relationships are, are going to build that back up, it seems to me. Well, I, if I'm going to trust you, I have to know that I can trust you for two things. I can trust you not to intentionally harm me, mm. And I have to trust you not to unintentionally harm me. Hmm. So the second one is the harder because it means that uh, the person that I trust really needs to know I'm there, know what's hurting me, and 
take steps to not unintentionally harm me. Well, I mean, Kurt, to do that, to do one and two, you really have to know somebody, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what it presupposes to me. It's sort of, I mean, how do I unintentionally not harm you? Well, I need to know who you are. I need to know what you like and what you dislike and what you read and what you don't read and who you love and you don't love and so on, and the list goes on. And I think uh, just, boom, bubble to the surface. But I, I seem to remember you asking the rhetorical question of the group at the OCIC, the Ontario Council of International Cooperation, you know, uh, of us asking the, 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 the Syrian refugee, do, do I know their story? Absolutely. The, I, I was uh, impacted by another book over the years. And before I read the book, I would look at someone and think, what's his problem? <laughs> right. After I read the book, I thought... What's his story? Mm. You know, it's a tiny little difference that once I created in myself, the world looks different to me, and therefore I can do different things. And people can do different things because I did. So what is, so what, you know, let's go, let's go, you know, you're a top-down, bottom-up guy, clearly. You know, you've got the academic and the theoretical and the PhD and all of that, but you're clearly, wow, on the ground, 35 years, um, you know, and your 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 the back of your napkin sounds pretty um, proactively comprehensive. If if you know what I mean, you're you're taking it all into consideration. Um, do we just need to distribute that napkin to a bunch of policymakers in Canada right now? Do we got to make sure that you know John McCallum and 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 Prime Minister Trudeau get that as well? I mean, what, what what's your advice to 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 Canadian? The, the Canadian team that are going to be responsible ultimately for these people landing on the ground in the very near future? Well, I feel a bit shy to give a, a prime minister advice. Okay? <laughs> so I'll pretend that I'm talking to his assistant. Okay? I could give his assistant some advice. That's, that's right, yes. Uh, just make sure that everybody in Canada who wants to do something for Syrians and every Syrian who comes, make sure that there's some mechanism or some driver or some opportunity or some potential for people to be linked with each other. Mm. You know, it can be, it can be such a simple thing as uh, doing a community service project together, which could mean just visiting in the winter because we have such pleasant winters up there in Canada, you know, just visiting people who can't get out. Right. And then, you know, you could bring a Syrian who could barely speak English. But the other thing that's very interesting is that uh, Arab culture is a culture that's growing out of traditional culture. Right. But they still have a tremendous respect for age. Hmm. So to take, you know, uh, to take a 14-year-old Canadian and a 14-year-old Syrian, to visit a 74-year-old homebound person, the 14-year-old Syrian actually knows how the, to uh, relate to an older person hmm. in an honorable way. And the 14-year-old mm. Canadian may have never met one. Right. You know, so there's, there's so many things that we could do together, and each side would learn tons from the other one. That's the kind of, you know, if policymakers are going to do stuff, you've got to think, how do we make policies that put people in contact with each other, helping other people? That would be the key. Hmm. I got to say, one of the things uh, that that I was concerned about just over the weekend, what I've been reading about, is the what appears to be, you know, this desire to get these folks on the ground as soon as possible to, uh, I guess, I don't know, um, 
follow through on a promise that was made. And, and so I'm sure the critics are going to be talking about, are we going to do it well? Are we looking at long-term sustainability here? What, what are some of the things that are in place to actually, you know, what are the mechanisms, you know, that we've got in place? But one of the things that came out of an article I read was, is there was talk of the military being involved, uh, and, and possibly putting people in, in, uh, on military bases and so on. And it, it, I don't know, it could be fine, could be temporary, but strikes me as a tad uh, anti-relational. Uh, or am I, am I being too much of an idealist at this point? For crying out late, David, we got to get them off the ground. We got to get them into Canada. That's the best we can do right now. Well, this, um, our governments can do what they keep in the front of their mind. So it may be better to bring people to Canada because they may freeze to death where right. they are. Okay, so it may be better to bring them here where, they, where at least they can be warm. Then it's up to the, to, the, to the bureaucracy of the government and the military to ensure that they cannot be held there for longer than a month, like for example. You have to put sundown right. clauses. Right. And then you have to have ombudsmen, people who their sole goal is to, to observe and to report when the system doesn't work. Mm. And that, that's probably the missing thing in our Western systems, is that we just don't, we don't believe apparently that they won't work. Therefore, we don't put people in our systems who flag them when they don't work. Yeah, Kurt, help me, help me out here. We're going to have to wrap up here soon, believe it or not, but, but, and maybe we'll have to do a part two, but help me out. You told a story, I think, about, about some folks who landed somewhere, got off the plane, and they were blown away by the reception. And, and we, and I think it was at the OCIC meeting this past week, and we talked about this idea of, of just meeting folks where they are. In other words, meet them where you'd like to be met, you know, have somebody to shake their hand when they come off the plane, to say hello, to smile, to say, here, come this way. And I think the tendency with these kinds of campaigns, these kinds of things is to, again, over bureaucratize them and go, okay, there's your lineup, there's your line, you know what I mean? And, and just divorce it <coughs> of any kind of human contact. Yeah, no, the particular case related to a Somali woman and her children who got off an airplane. And I'll, I'll leave the city unnamed. It's, it could be, we would hope it would be any city, right? What does the city's and name rhyme with, Kurt? Hanto, <laughs> <laughs> <I'm>, okay? <laughs> so as, as she got off the plane, she looked around, and you know there were a few people there who said hello to her. And she said, is there some dignitary coming? She said, mm. there are so many people here. Mm. There must be some dignitary who's coming. And the people meeting her saying, no, no, these are all the people who are here to welcome you. And she looked and said, in all my life, no one has ever met me and welcomed me anywhere. Mm. Well, it'll be hard to take that memory out of her mind. Yeah, no and it kidding. And it's hard to take that story out of her mouth as it's told to her children. Yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't get the second chance to make that first impression, right? No, no, no. 
so let's let's end on this one i think i mean it, who knows it could take us elsewhere but so so lastly then how how do you th you know canadians pride themselves i think we're on on being you know um altruistic and and and, and helpful and you know well you're canadian after all you know that kind of thing and we, you wear your canadian flag and i think We've lost some of that over the last few years, and there's a variety of reasons why that has been the case. And, and you know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, he campaigns on this whole notion of real change. He's talking about what Canada used to be like. I love his answer about his cabinet. Well, because it's 2015. Why not? Of right. course, this is the way it should be, right? What, yeah. what, what can we do to stay on message there, Kurt, and not just to give lip service and to watch another, you know, uh, uh, toothpaste commercial, as you say, but to actually go deeper as Canadians and as neighbors to these Syrian men, women, and children coming in the near future? I find, you know, as, as an American visiting Canada and working with people in your embassies in the Middle East for three decades, Canadians also strike me as extremely practical people. Hmm. And it is extremely practical to be a good neighbor. Right. And, you know, it truly is. And the um, a system can disincentivize people for a short time. Hmm. You know, n not, to, not to be altruistic or to lower your altruism. Etc. Etc. But a system cannot suppress the basic inside self of a human being, and it's inside of ourselves to give. That's the way we're made. There wouldn't be humans. We don't make very good animals, right? We don't have scales. We don't have fins. We don't have claws. We survive because we give, and we care. So the um, and once you start cultivating that and talking about it. Things just get out of control, and people just start caring and giving all over the place. So I think that's what's possible. It's, it's a pretty nice way to end. Dr. Kurt Rhodes, he spent over 35 years working in the Middle East. He's the 2014 Dr. Jean Merrick Global Citizenship Award, 2011 Social Entrepreneur of the Year, uh, Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. And he said, as you can see, a pretty all-around guy, got a great sense of humor and apparently a wicked smile based on what we've been... <laughs> Well, we've been talking. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's really my privilege. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.